0: Some of you may know that I I just love studying history because I think we can learn so much from the past. And during World War II, the Japanese Empire cast a shadow over most of Southeast Asia. Many of the women and children from allied nations, you know, those that were uh, considered enemies of Japan, were actually incarcerated. They were put in prisoner war camps. Can you imagine? It's women and children. And... In one of the prison camps in Sumatra, certain women risked the wrath of their captors by creating an orchestra without any benefit of orchestration. No instruments. So how were they going to do this? Well, they did it by humming the various parts of great classical pieces of music. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. And though they were forbidden to ever assemble, these women found creative ways to gather together to learn their parts, and then there was an evening that came. They weren't allowed to assemble, but all of a sudden they went against the direct orders. They assembled together, and you can see all these Japanese guards racing towards them as they began to hum the various parts of a great masterpiece so beautifully that the guards were stunned and stopped." Over the course of the next two years, these women worked on 30 different arrangements as a means to maintaining a level of morale. How many think it would be important in a concentration camp to somehow maintain some level of morale? So they did this through singing, and I think that's a beautiful way to do it. Now, there were two women that were instrumental in making this possible. One of them, uh, before she was married and before the war, she was a concert violinist, so she really knew about music. And then the other was somebody who was a totally different person, a young single woman who had been, a, who was a missionary who were teaching children, but she had this innate ability to memorize all of the notes of these classical pieces of music. Can you imagine? She had it all memorized. And so between the two of them, they were able to create this phenomenal piece of orchestration. Now, this story, it's a true story, actually became a movie, and some of you may have seen it, some of you may not have, but the name of the movie was called Paradise Road, and in one very moving scene, uh, these two women, after you know, t- you know, finishing a performance, they had witnessed the brutality of some guard towards some woman, and... Uh, and of course, the Japanese commander had asked for them to sing this uh, folk, Japanese folk song. And so they were really, the one woman was so angry. She could, she could not shield her sense of hatred and frustration at what was being asked of her in light of this brutality. And when she turned to the young woman who was the missionary, she noticed that she had a totally different countenance, a totally different expression on her face. And she says to her, you don't hate them, do you? And the young missionary said, no, I tried, but I just can't make myself to hate them. Rather, I find myself pitying them. Now, that moment, that, that experience, that attitude that was reflected in this missionary is a word that we're really not acquainted with in our culture. It's the idea of meekness. I didn't say weakness, I said meekness, and there's a tremendous power in it. In the last few weeks, I've been looking at these beautiful words of Jesus in the Beatitudes, and many of us love this part of the scripture, it's found in Matthew chapter 5, and there's you know, these eight beatitudes, these attitudes that really can shape our lives. But a lot of us, we may read those words, they look beautiful, but I don't know if we've always fully grasped the meaning and the radical nature of what Jesus was teaching. And Jesus starts out in the beatitudes Blessed are the poor in spirit. For they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus was talk about the poor in spirit and I preached this two weeks ago, you know, he was talking about those who recognize their spiritual poverty apart from God. And when, when you and I recognize we can't do life apart from Him and we surrender to Him, it's amazing what happens. We begin, we become inheritors of God's kingdom. So the person who is poor now becomes enriched by God's kingdom. And then the second beatitude is, blessed are uh, the uh, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And last week I talked about, you know, it's true that when we have losses in our lives, God will comfort us, but that text is not teaching us that specifically. He's talking more about the idea that we're mourning over our own sinfulness. And when we recognize how spiritually poor we are, how literally we can be, you know, we're... we're, we're You know, in our minds, we think that we're far better than we really are. It's it's a little—it's a shake-up sometimes. And I think that you know, we have all of these things that help us make us feel better about ourselves. But when we're given the context of difficulty and crisis, sometimes behavior comes out of us that shocks even ourselves. Anybody ever had that experience that you shocked yourself by some poor behavior on your part? I've got my hand up. Maybe somebody you don't, but you know, you're, you're kind of shocked. Hey, did that come out of me? Like, what's, where's that coming from? And so deep within us, we recognize that we do have a sinful nature. And when we recognize that, and maybe we feel such guilt or shame, that's the idea that Jesus is talking about there, that when we identify and say, okay, that's true of me, then we can be comforted by God's grace and forgiveness. But let me move on to the third one here tonight. It says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, this is a very powerful text. And what Jesus is saying, and I think we read this, and we don't fully understand what he's talking about here, because the word earth and land in the Hebrew languages are interchangeable thoughts. And I want you to go all the way back to the Old Testament for a minute and recognize that God made a promise to his people that they would inherit the what? The land. There was a promised land, okay? That was God's promise to the nation of Israel. So God said to them, I'm, I'm gonna bless you with this amazing land. But in the new covenant, most of the physical promises are now translated into spiritual promises. And a lot of us miss that. We're still locked into the physical. But no, you know, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So what is he really talking about here? That you and I will inherit the promises that God is giving to us. And I believe that in our lives that God wants to reveal himself to each one of us and make promises into our lives that he wants to bring to pass in our lives. Isn't that a beautiful thought? God has a plan for me. God has a plan for you. God wants to promise things into your lives and then God wants to fulfill those things. But there's sometimes a difference between the day God promises and the fulfillment of that promise. And that's what we're going to talk about because the meek are the ones. The people who actually in God's promises are the meek. So what does it mean then to be a meek person? Because I think we have a hard time understanding this concept. Well, meekness is primarily directed towards God. And it's that temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealing with us as good, and therefore we do not resist the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. In other words, we actually believe God is good. Isn't that amazing? You know, a lot of times we're disappointed by life, we can become disillusioned with life, we can get frustrated with things, and we can question God's goodness because we've had a negative experience in our life. Isn't that true? i may say that's true. You know, we can't have those experiences. And what I'm trying to get across tonight is once you and I settle this in our heart, number one, God is a good God, God's going to do good things on our behalf, and God really does love us, then you and I live with this deep, confidence in our heart that even though negative, evil, terrible, tragic things happen, God is still good and he's gonna, has the ability to work these things for good. As a matter of fact, it's another way of saying that we accept our lot in life as having been screened through the loving hands of our Father in heaven, knowing that sin brings things into our world, but God has a way of transforming the most hideous and bringing those things and bringing good out of them. And I love that about God. Do you know, you and I can't do that. You and I can't take negative, evil things and transform them into good things. But can I say to you, God is able to do that which is seemingly impossible. He can transform these things and use them in a powerful way. And I believe that this attitude is expressed. Now, I'm going to I'm gonna focus, give you three examples how meekness is directed to God. And then I'm going to... Sh- Focus in on how this is going to affect our relationships with people, because I think that's where most of us are living. Well, first of all, we see it in the story of Joseph. Joseph showed meekness, and you, if you read the Old Testament chapter, uh, the book of Genesis from chapter thirty-seven to fifty, it's the story of Joseph, and it's an amazing. I love this story, and Joseph, you know, has a dream from God. God promises him some amazing things. He's seventeen years old, and how many know you can be full of yourself at seventeen? Does anybody know that's true? And you can walk around going, boy, God's going to do this for me. God's going to do that. And you know, a lot of times, all it does is irritate other people and cause jealousy for you and creates problems. His brothers were envious of Joseph and they hated the fact that Joseph was his father's favorite. They sold him into slavery. We know the story. He gets down to Egypt He's falsely accused, he's in prison. How many know at that moment in his life, Joseph's probably thinking, you know, I don't know how this dream is going to become a reality because this is not what I expected. Sometimes the road to reality is a difficult road, even sometimes a road of suffering and challenge, but God was in it. Well, eventually, because Joseph ended up in prison, falsely accused, he ended up meet, meets two gentlemen who are part of Pharaoh's entourage, the king of Egypt. And they each have a dream. Joseph correctly interprets them. And then later on, he tells the guy, please remember me, you know, I was unjustly treated. I'm in jail. He probably said, yeah, I've heard that story before. But then he goes back to Pharaoh's palace and forgets all about Joseph. So for two years, Joseph is forgotten. But then one day, the Pharaoh has a dream. Nobody can give the interpretation. And then he remembers, oh yeah, there was a young slave in the prison. He was able to interpret my dream. And so Joseph's brought before Pharaoh. We know the story. Joseph correctly interprets the dream he's raised to be prime minister of the land. Is that an amazing story. Now, he's moved from, you know, basically rags to riches kind of a story. He's now the prime minister, there's famine in the land. And now his family back in Canaan land are severely affected by that famine. They come down, and Joseph now, his dream is now becoming reality. The promise is becoming fulfilled. And at the end, his father dies. His brothers, who are now living with over 30 years of shame... Can you imagine harboring the fact that we feel guilty over what we did to our brother? And they feel like, hey, he can kill us now. Now that our dad is gone, there's nothing to protect us. And so they come to Joseph and they say, please, dad told us before he died you were to forgive us. You know, like, please don't kill us, in other words. And Joseph's response is a response of meekness. He said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? In other words, am I to judge you? He said, listen, listen. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done. The saving of many lives. That is the spirit of meekness. In other words, Joseph saw the greater purpose in the evil that was done to him, and he was able to forgive his brothers. That's one example. The second one is found in the story of Job. Many of you probably have read the book of Job. One day, you know, there's a test in his life. He loses 10 of his children and all of his wealth in a day. That was a bad day in the life of Job, right? That was awful. I mean, you, those are the days, and we've all had days like that. You go, there's nothing that can can get worse than what's already happened and then something else happens. How many have ever had a day like that? You know, you wish you hadn't gotten out of bed, right? And there's a day like that and Job has one of the worst days of his entire life. And of course, you know, how does he handle this? And because Job is a meek man, it's demonstrated in his response. He gets down and worships and he says this, naked came I into the world, naked shall I return, blessed be the name of the Lord. He begins to worship God because he believes that God is still a good God. His wife, however, is having a little problem. With that attitude, and she's angry because she just lost ten kids and all the money too. You know, she's in this venture together, and her response is not a response of meekness; it's a response of anger. And she just says to Job, "Why don't you just curse God and die?" You know, that was her response. And here's and here's uh, Job's response. He says, "Hey, you're talking like a foolish woman." Now, he's not saying that you're saying a stupid thing. What he's saying is you're acting like somebody who has no confidence in God. He says, "Shall we accept good from God and not trouble?" In other words. Why is it that we have this attitude that God is only going to do good things for us and never allow challenge and difficulty to come into our lives when we need to understand that the challenge and difficulties are part of what God uses in our lives to shape us and make us more like Christ? And then I want to take the third example, and it's the example of Jesus. You know, Jesus came into the world to die for us. But how many know as a human being, he was struggling when he got to the Garden of Gethsemane? How many know there's a strong urge in each of our lives to retain life? Isn't that true? And so Jesus is now praying. He recognizes he's going to be the sin offering. He's going to die for the sin of the world. And also, for the first time in his life, he's going to be cut off from fellowship with his Father. And here's his prayer. Father, if it's possible for you, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, isn't that what Jesus taught you and I? To get up in the morning, just think about it. You know, the Lord's Prayer, we're taught to pray. And we're, we're taught to not only hallow the name of God, but we're taught to, you know, to say, Your kingdom come. In other words, God, would your agenda be fulfilled today in my life? Would your will be done in me? as it is in heaven in other words lord i'm here for you and we can pray that beautiful prayer in the morning and then we go out busy with our day we go to school we go to work you know we go shopping we go there we have things to do we have a list you know we got to buy christmas gift for this and so and so and all of a sudden something happens in our day and we go there goes my agenda and how do we respond to that we get irritated, we get frustrated, we're annoyed, you know, we're nasty on the highway. This is a great sermon for road rage because if we're a meek person, think about it, we don't allow the things that are around us that are happening to us to make us so upset that we respond in a negative way. Isn't that true? Now why why does God say that the meek will inherit the promises. Because when we're not meek, what happens is we actually circumvent and we, you know, we actually create problems in seeing God fulfill what he has in mind for our lives. We actually you know, sabotage God's future for us because you know we're trying to live life, excuse me, God, I didn't accept this interruption in my life. But God brings them. How many have noticed God allows things to come into our life? And we need to understand that what God is allowing in, there's a reason for it. So, you know, I learned a long time ago that when things come my way and interruptions, I'm going, oh no, the, this, is not, this is not my agenda, this is God's agenda. And I've got to shift over to where God is at and begin to minister over here, not what I thought I needed to do over there. And you don't get upset about it. Now you're just going, I'm just flowing with God. This is what God has in mind for my day today." Interesting. Meekness is surrendering our rights and desires to fulfill God's purposes. That's what a meek person does. It just says, hey, I'm flowing with God. Meekness is that working of the Holy Spirit in our lives that enables us to receive from God's Word and to respond to it in a proper manner. You know, this morning I was up early, I was praying, and you know, I was reading these beautiful texts in the book of Proverbs, and it says, The wise accepts God's correction. And rebuke. How many know that when you're being rebuked by the word of God or you're being rebuked by a person, you know, it says the foolish person doesn't accept that. They just dismiss all those things. But the wise person listens and says, you know, there, I need to make some adjustments in my life. How many know that's true? You know, how many know in this room that you and I don't have it all together? Is anybody willing to admit that? And isn't it awesome that God wants to adjust and correct us so that we can make those minor adjustments? That's one of the reasons why we come to church on a Sunday. So we hear the Word of God, and we make those adjustments in our attitude and our thinking so that when we go back out on a Monday, we're in a different frame of reference. But otherwise, we're just going back out and doing our own thing and just acting in the same old way and getting the same old results, right? More frustration. You know, the book of James says, Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. You know, the King James uses the word meekness there. Hum- you know with Meekness, accept the word. In other words, accept it as a good thing. And when God is speaking that word into your life, we're just rejoicing over it. You know, I don't get mad at the person when I'm listening to a sermon, and they' they you know it's it's speaking into my life and I'm hearing get get your act together here, buddy. you know God's reminding me you you've let that slip over here. let's make an adjustment right now I'm going, thank you, I don't get mad. I'm just going thank you Lord, for reminding me to for this tune up in my life Isn't that good. And, you know, by the way, I, I get it on a deeper level than you because I'm living with these words all week long. You're just hearing them once on a Sunday. You know, I've got God probing and pushing my soul as I'm preparing for these messages. Meekness, then, is that attitude that embraces God's word, even though it may painfully address issues in our lives. You know, we can say, ouch, we can say, thank you. You know, and you might, well, maybe you'll say both, but at the end, hopefully, you'll receive it. Not only is meekness directed towards God, but it can also be seen directed toward men. Thomas Watson was a 17th century Puritan, and he said this, meekness consists of three things. The bearing of injuries. What does he mean by that? It means that I've been wronged or offended, but I'm forbearing and tolerating what's being done to me. Okay. Number two, the forgiving of injuries. How many know that in life you're going to be hurt and wounded? Anybody here been, ever been hurt and wounded? Okay, what do we got to do with that stuff? Oh, and we're just going to camp there and be upset and frustrated and offended, or we're going to say, you know what, I got to address this stuff and I got to let it go. I just got to let this stuff go. And then the are recompensing good for evil. In other words, if I'm a meek person, instead of treating people poorly because they treated me poorly, instead, in turn, I treat them well. How many know that's not normal behavior? And that just really messes with people's heads, by the way. Does anybody know that? If people treat you poorly and you're treating them nicely, what starts happening in their heads? They're going, why are you being nice to me? I was just nasty to you. It doesn't compute. See, but that's how you overcome evil, by doing good, Paul says in the book of Romans. So meekness is really a part of what God, I'll say it this way, the person who is a happy person exhibits meekness. And the person who is, you know, seizing, self-assertive, trying to run their life and direct everything, they usually live an unhappy, frustrated, and an irritated life. And the happy person is the person going, whatever comes my way, God is still good, and I'm just going to trust God to work out all of these crazy things that are happening in my life. That's the meek person. So we're going to look at this concept today, and I want to show you the blessings that comes to the meek. Oh, wow, I've got, I'm skipping some stuff here. Let me go back here. Meekness is that temper of soul that not easily provoked. How many know that's true? It's the ability to pass by an injury without revenge. In other words, I'm not easily offended. I don't have to get even. Okay? That's important. You know, Proverbs 19.11 says, The dis- discretion of a man deferth his anger, and it is glory to pass over a transgression. Another translation says an offense. In other words, if I'm a meek person, I don't let things get to me, and I'm not easily offended. You know, you ever thought about it? You know, when we're when we're easily offended, what's happening is somebody's hitting my button? Isn't that true? And so what God wants us to do, instead of going back and trying to hit their button, God's telling you, why don't you dis you know disengage your button? You know, disengage your button. You know? In other words, you need to die to yourself. You know, if I'm if I'm a Christian, I am crucified with Christ. And I remind myself, what can a dead man feel if somebody's trying to offend a dead man? They, they don't feel it. You know, So if something's bugging me, i got to go back into my own soul and go, i got to disengage this button. Because I know if I don't, there'll be other people hitting that same button. Isn't that true? So the best thing I can do is disengage what annoys me and frustrates me and say, God, could you please help me deal with this? So that when people hit that button, all of a sudden there's no response anymore. I don't even feel a thing. It no longer bugs me. I can handle it now. Isn't that, how many think that's an awesome way to deal with problems? Otherwise, people are going to just keep hitting that button. You know, and isn't it funny what God does? If you have a button, God will keep bringing people into your life to keep hitting that button. How many have kind of noticed that? They just keep hitting the same button, and you're, you're just going, I'm just getting madder and madder and madder. And God goes, could you please, you know, deal with the button? Okay. It's getting quiet in here. I knew this was kind of a sermon that really gets to people, but that's all right. You know, Actually, meekness is not weakness. It's actually strength controlled by the Spirit of God. How many think that's amazing? That's when we're, we're Spirit-controlled people. It is trusting God to fulfill His purposes rather than assert our rights and taking things into our own hands. So what I'm arguing against is self-assertiveness, and that's something that our culture keeps telling you to be more assertive. And I'm saying no, don't be like that. Be more trusting of God. Let God fight the battle, instead of you having to rescue yourself and fight that battle. So, as we're looking at this beatitude, I want to just point out to you the blessing that comes to the meek. They're always going to get what God promises. Isn't that neat? So if you're a meek person, you're going to get the promise in the end. That's what you need to hear. Because they wait for it and receive it in God's timetable and in God's way. And actually, you know what sin really is? Sin is just plain old self-assertion, taking a legitimate thing in the wrong time in the wrong way with the wrong people. See, sin is all these good gifts that God gives, and we turn them and use them at the wrong moment. And it, just, it affects us in a negative way. It's not that God is holding back good things from us. God has a timing and a place. And the Bible says God makes everything what? Beautiful in his time. I'm quoting Ecclesiastes 3.11. I love that verse. God makes it beautiful in the right time. Now let's take a look at three areas that I believe that we have to address in our relationships where meekness is going to make a major difference in our life. And the first one is what those people who are in authority over us. And how many know we all have people that are over us in life? Now, let me give you some examples. If I'm a child, I have a parent over me. If I'm a student, I have a teacher over me. You know, I actually am I'm in school right now. I actually have a teacher over me telling me all the areas that I'm wrong in. And all they do is correct me you know, and you know, it could be so annoying, and you know what I say to myself, this person is my friend, they're making me better than what I was, but a lot of times we feel insecure, and we go, oh, they're making me feel worse than I am, they're making me think I'm nobody, that's how a lot of students respond, what we should be saying is, thank you for pointing out the areas I need to grow and develop in, how many think that's a different attitude, and what happens when we embrace the correction, and we work on those things, who gets better, we do isn't that amazing isn't that a good idea sure it is so it's just all about our attitude how we enter into correction in our lives how many know that most of us have bosses and sometimes we get frustrated with them as if they don't know what they're doing and maybe they don't know what they're doing but they're still your boss you know so you got to have the right attitude towards them isn't that true Yeah, and you know, here's another one. This is the one that will really get to us. And I heard a lot of groaning in the first two services. What about the leaders in our country? Isn't it amazing how we show them so little deference and respect and we're always upset about what they're doing and saying? And maybe they are wrong, but that's not the point. It's our attitude that God is interested in. And if we walk around dishing out and disrespecting these people all the time, what do you think it's doing to us? We're not showing meekness in our lives. Well, think about David for a minute. Do you know he had somebody over him? His name was Saul. Now, Saul had some issues in his life. You're going to see this. As a matter of fact, I think he had some severe emotional issues. But David was under him. So was a whole bunch of other people. And we know the story that because David, we see a number of ways in David. I'm going to use David as an example tonight, how he didn't assert himself in so many situations. Now we all know the story of David and Goliath. I think we do anyways. First Samuel 17. You know, this is a national calamity. A giant, the nation is at war and a giant comes up and says, "Forget all these guys fighting. Just send a, your your champion and not whoever wins the battle." That's, that's going to determine who's going to be subjected to whom, okay? And so this giant by the name of Goliath comes there, and the whole nation is terrified. Saul doesn't know what to do. He's the leader, but he doesn't know what to do. He's terrified. And all of a sudden, David, a 17-year-old kid, shows up on the scene and says, hey, I'll go fight him. Now, how many know that's a little bit uh, kind of a, a put-down to the king? You know, he's the leader. Have you ever thought about that? You know? And but Saul is so terrified he goes, "Okay, kid, go ahead and do it you know And then he tries to put his arm around him, but that doesn't work. David says, "No, no i can't I can't fight I've, I've never fought in this this stuff." And so David runs out with his slingshot and kills the giant. How many know now that was a great victory for Israel, but it also created it caused David a lot of problems. and you say, "What do you mean? Well, then the people in Israel began to sing a song. Saul has slain his thousands, and David has 10,000. And so it irked Saul to no end. He was jealous of David. You know, he says, listen to what they're saying. They say, this guy's better than me. And because Saul was so insecure, how many know when you have an insecure person over top of you, you're going to have problems, especially if you're a competent person. And that's exactly what happened to David. And so then, you know, the king made this amazing promise in the moment of national calamity. He said, whoever goes out and fights this giant I'm going to give him my daughter's hand, which is also giving him a line to the throne. And secondly, and you're going to love this, no taxation for the rest of your life for you and your family. How many go, you know, I could even fight a giant for no taxation, you know, right? And so David goes out and does this. Now, how many know it's one thing to have somebody promise you something, but how many know it's tough when they don't come through on their promise? And you've risked your life for it. And then we read this. David said to Saul, who am I and what's my family or clan in Israel that I should become the king's son in law? He's being modest, right? You know, he says, you know, I really don't deserve this honor. But that doesn't mean Saul shouldn't have done it for him. But then the very next verse, so when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola. Now, how many know at this moment Saul is reneging on his promise? David had, you know, had done his part of the bargain. Saul is not following through. Now, I want you to think about this. This was a defining moment in David's life, right? I mean, how is he going to respond to this purposeful oversight? He could have become angry. He could have become bitter. He could have become disillusioned. Come on now, isn't that true? But you know what? David was like Jesus. He didn't consider his right something to be attained or grasped at. He just laid it down. He just said, okay, no problem. Now, how many know that when you have been shirked, you have been overlooked, you know, you got to deal with that stuff inside of you? Okay? When we are a meek person, we don't let those things define our lives. How many say that's pretty powerful? You know what happens now? Because David had the right attitude. Just remember, David was anointed by a prophet. David was told he's going to be king. David was 17 years old. How many think David was not ready to be be the king at seven? He was not ready. So God was now going to do something for the next number of years to develop David to become the man he needed to be to to become a good king. And so one of the steps is how do you handle disappointment in your life? Anybody here ever have disappointment in their life? See, I got my hand up. Come on, we all have had disappointment. How are you going to handle disappointments? See, a meek person handles it the right way. David, you know, decided, hey, no problem. I'm going to move on. Second thing we see David express meekness was by avoiding confrontation with Saul. Now Saul had some issues. It says the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. A lot of people have a problem with this text. How in the world can an evil spirit come from God? Can I tell you, in the Old Testament, you know, the whole demon idea was underdeveloped. We get a lot of that understanding from the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, it's an underdeveloped idea. And the Jewish people felt this way, that Satan was strictly under the, the control of God. That everything that happened, God controlled. By the way, that's good theology. God does control everything. He even controls the activity. Satan is limited in his activity in our lives. So when people say, well, the devil's doing this, the devil's doing that, I'm going, yeah, but he's, he's limited by God. So don't give him too much credit, Okay. But I want you to notice, here's Saul. He's tormented by an evil spirit, but he's prophesying in his house by the Spirit of God. How many go, how in the world can that happen? How can you be tormented one minute and have the Spirit of God empowering you to prophesy in the next minute? And my answer is real simple. We're a mixed bag of goods. And everyone in this room, that's the same of all of us. You know, we can have the anointing of God in our lives, and we can have significant issues that are problematic. Okay? How many see it? That's the way it is. That's the way human beings are. Now, David was there playing his lyre. He was, you know, music has a way to calm the the troubled soul, right? And Saul had employed David as a musician. He was calming him. And Saul had a spear in his hand, and the Bible says, and he hurled it. Now, I don't think he was just meant to you know, to intimidate David. It says, he said to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. How many know if you're going to pin somebody to the wall with a spear, you're probably going to do some damage in their life. So, you know, what it was saying to me was, he was so tormented and oppressed of an evil spirit and so jealous of David that there were moments of, you know, I would say irrational thinking and behavior, and he wanted to kill David. And because he was a king and had power, he tried to do it, not just once, but twice. And so what did David do? You know, he said, Man, I gotta stay out of this guy's road. You know, I don't want to do anything that's gonna provoke this guy. How many know that? This is not an easy person. How many like to have a boss like this? I mean, this was a difficult situation, and you can't just get out of it because he's the king. David it says Saul was afraid of David. Isn't that amazing? You think that David should be afraid of Saul, but the reality was Saul was afraid of David because he could see the hand of God on David's life. And he saw that, you know, the Lord was with David, but the Lord had departed from him. He was jealous of David. Lots of problems. Okay, a meek person looks to avoid unnecessary conflict with other people. Isn't that wisdom? You know, this is not avoiding issues, but rather they don't provoke others. And I think that's so important. I love Proverbs 15.1. It says, you know, a soft answer turns away anger. You know, can I just say a lot of our conflicts is because we're standing up for our rights and we're arguing with each other. And how many know that a lot of times you just say, you know what, that's all soft. They think they're right, let them think they're right. I'm just not going to even argue with this. This is not even a point worth arguing over. Do you know it would save a lot of marital tensions if one of the person has enough wisdom to just say, you know what, a soft answer turns away wrath. You know what would save a lot of heartache? Save a lot of interpersonal conflict? David had that kind of wisdom. I think meek people understand this and they don't have to defend themselves. They don't have to be in the right. Who cares half the time who's in the right? Because all that happens in these arguments is people hurt each other, right? That's exactly what's happening, you know. The other thing I notice is that the meek don't take things into their own hands. They allow God to promote them in his time and in his way. You know, David had opportunities to kill King Saul. Did you realize that in chapter 24 and chapter 26? As a matter of fact, one time it says that Saul went to relieve himself in a cave, but he went to the cave that David and his men were hiding. And all his men said, hey, David, this is the opportunity. It says so in chapter 24, verse 4. They said, this is the day the Lord has spoken of when he said, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And David crept up to him unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. But then David was conscious stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. You know what? Because David realized, I'm disrespecting my leader. Folks, how many times do we disrespect our leaders? It's getting quiet in here. That happens a lot, doesn't it? And it's happening a lot right now because maybe our leaders don't always make the wisest decisions, but we have to be careful we don't show them disrespect. Saul was a person that was hard to respect, but David was conscious stricken. He said to the men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master the Lord's anointed or lift my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. He's the one that God's put into this place. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. And after a while, he'd gone no distance. david come out, and this is what David said. Here's what the meek person realizes. May the Lord judge between you and me. In other words, he says, you know what? I'm going to let God handle me. I'm going to let God handle this. I'm going to let God vindicate me. I'm going to let God work this out. I'm not going to have to defend myself. He said, may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me. In other words, yes, you've done wrong to me, but I'm not going to punish you for it. I'm going to let God address it. How many think that's an amazing spirit? You know, I'm not going to get even. I'm going to let God deal with it. That's the spirit of meekness. And you can see that evidenced in in, uh, David's life. And then I see the most powerful expression of meekness is David's response to Saul's death. You know, 20 years, sorry, 13 years after uh, David being anointed, 17 years later, Saul is killed. And I want you to notice how David handles Saul's death. You would think he'd be going, yippee, I become king, right? Got rid of this terrible guy. I'm taking over now. We're going to do things differently. That's not how he responds. Matter of fact, we read, then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. That's a sign of grief. He was grieving the loss. It says, they mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now you can say, well, yeah, David's grieving for his friend Jonathan or David's grieving because the armies of God were defeated. But I want to keep pointing out to you, if you keep reading, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. And Saul and Jonathan in life, they were loved and gracious. Now, wait a minute, David. Saul wasn't that gracious, was he? And in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, and they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for who? Saul! Weep for my enemy, he's saying. Why? Oh, oh, who clothed you in scarlet and finery? Who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold? What is he saying? He's saying, you know what? Saul may have done a lot of stupid, dumb, crazy, bad things, but he also did some good things. And instead of remembering all the negative stuff, what does David do? He focuses in on all the good things Saul had done in his death. How many think that's an amazing thing to do? And you know what's really sad? A lot of us in this room are suffering right now, anguish, hurt frustration, resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness towards maybe parents who are now dead or to other people who have done things to you that they shouldn't have never done. And you're living with the scars of that. And you know what? Maybe they die. And all you have is a bitter memory of that person. I want you to notice what the meek person does. They don't focus on all the bad stuff. They're not in denial. They know it exists, but they've forgiven this person. We'll see that in a minute. But what they do is focus in on This is what they did right. How many think that's powerful? Because, you know, what we tend to do is focus on the negative rather than focus on the positive. And I'm going to tell you right now, when you're a meek person, God is going to do amazing things in your life. He's going to fulfill His promises to you. But let me move on to the second point. This will be real brief. You know, how do we handle the people who impede our progress in life? You know, isn't it true that there, there always are people that are difficult to deal with, and there are always people that seem to be taking advantage of us? You know, sometimes you work really hard. Have you ever, you, ever, you ever been in a, a job where you've worked really hard, you've done all the hard work, and somebody else gets the credit for your hard work? And did that ever happen to you? Is that ever frustrating or what, huh? You know, and but the meek person, instead of getting so upset about it, they just go, you know what, it's fine. I don't need to have the credit. I know before Almighty God that I, I served with all of my heart. I'm serving as unto the Lord. The one who sees my service is God who sees everything in secret. And there'll be a day he rewards me openly. And I'm going to tell you something. That happens over and over again. We don't realize that. We just assume everybody, you know, and sometimes they don't, they are blind. They don't see what we've done. But that doesn't matter. God sees. All of a sudden, Saul is gone. And, you know, basically David's now, he's, he's assuming and he's going to become the king, right? Because God has promised him that. And you know what happens? The two southern tribes make him the king, but the ten northern tribes of Israel do not make him the king. Isn't that interesting? And what happens is Saul's son, Ishbosheth becomes the king over all the northern tribes, the ten tribes. That's amazing. So you would think, after years of fleeing for his life, which was about 13, from the presence of Saul, that David would assume this was the time for him to take control of his own destiny. And you know, a lot of people would have tried. But David does not do that. Meekness reveals itself in our patience to see God's promises come to pass. How many know Abraham had to wait 25 years to see God's promise come to pass? How many know patience is not our strong suit? You know, because we're living in what the microwave age, when God's really a uh, crockpot operator. Does anybody notice that? You know, God is working at developing our character, just like He puts us in the crockpot and slow cooking. And all of us, you know, we're 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 impatient. You know, you know, our prayer is like, Lord, give me patience and bring it now. You know, that's our prayer. We want to be a listen. That's not going to happen that way. And so God, you know, allows time to season something in our lives. So, David now, it says here, Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. And the tribe of Judah, however, may, remained loyal to David. And the length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Now, I've got to stop here. I've done my math. Okay, so now we're going to find out the story of Ishbosheth. He dies after two years. You would assume that's the time David becomes the king over all the monarchy. No. Another five and a half years go by. Do you know what? We have this funny idea that life is neat and tidy. Can I just tell you right now, life is messy. There was all kinds of difficulties. You know, we read the story that just seems like it's a real smooth transition. It was not smooth at all. You know, when God is fulfilling his promises, a lot of times it's a lot messier than we think. It just takes time. So, There are people, meek people, I I wrote, do not take advantage of the situation at the expense of others, nor are they indifferent to injustice. So here's what happens. Two of Ishbosheth's servants, while the king is sleeping, go in and murder him and cut off his head. That's kind of gory. Take his head and bring it to David and go, your enemy's dead, you can be king of the whole nation. Do you know what David does? He goes, I can't believe you've done this. That's evil. You killed an innocent man, You're your king, and you expect that I'm going to bless this? Forget it. You are going to be punished for murdering this person. And David put him to death. The two guilty people. Isn't that amazing? David did not take advantage of the situation. When we're a meek person, we don't benefit at the expense of others. I think we need to learn that lesson. Because that's going to come back to haunt us. Because you see, you have to understand, there's a God in heaven watching all of our behavior. He knows what's going on. You know, let me move on to the third area. And it's simply not taking advantage of those who have hurt us. Because eventually in life, the tables change. And they turn. You know, a lot of times the people have been repressed. Eventually, the table flips. And now they have an opportunity to get back at people. How are we going to handle it when we have been oppressed, and abused, and taken advantage of, and all of a sudden, now we have the opportunity to get even. Now we discover how meek we really are. Look what happens. We see this demonstrated in David's relationships. Here's another story. David, you know, is fleeing from his son Absalom, but while he's leaving the city, there's a man by the name of Shimei, who is a descendant of King Saul. And he's pelting David, and all of the officials with stones. How many know it hurts when people are throwing rocks at you and they're hitting you? You know, that's not, a, that's not a fun experience. And David is traveling with his troops and his special guard are on his right and on his left. So David now has the power to do something about this character. And the man is cursing. As he cursed, Shimei said, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. So he's defaming the name of David. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul in whose place you've reigned. So he's condemning David. He's saying, you're only getting what you deserve from God. And I want you to notice David's response. And I believe it's a response of meekness. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. To be meek means that you have finished with yourself altogether and you've come to see that you have no rights or deserts at all. In other words, you don't deserve what you're getting. When a man... And I say a woman, he's writing in the 1950s, so he's locked into this language. When a man truly sees himself, he knows nobody can say anything about him that is too bad. What he means is, when people say nasty things about you, you can say, hey, I'm probably worse than you think, you know? You need not worry about what men say or do. You know you deserve it all and more. The man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God can think of him as well as they do, people think of them as well as they do and treat them as well as they do that it seems to me is the essential quality. In other words, he's saying, listen, when people treat you nice, you go, why would I deserve this? And you know, a meek person realizes how blessed we really are. You know, I, I think about all of us in this room right now. Do you realize how blessed we really are? You know, I've had the privilege of traveling in other parts of the world. You know, if you would see the condition of most of the people in our world and how they live, you would be saying, I am so blessed. You know, there are people who work 12 hours a day, hard labor. They make 3 or $4 U.S. a day. And the cost of living in many of these countries is almost what it is here. Can you imagine how difficult it is for them to feed their families? And it's not because they're lazy folks. There's a great inequality in our world. You and I are so absolutely blessed. And then to think that if you're in this room right now and God has revealed himself as Lord and Savior to you, you have to say, why did you choose me, Lord? Why did you open? See, I I keep thinking about that. You know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Why would God take the time to reveal himself to me? And then listen to this. I have the privilege of communicating his word. What What an amazing privilege. What a joy to be able to handle God's work week in and week out and present it to you. You know, what a high calling and privilege. I feel like, why would God pick me? Why would God do that? You know, I feel overwhelmed by that. And we should feel this way. And that's the way what Martin Lloyd-Jones is telling us. Now listen to David's response. You know, he rebukes one of his own men because he wants to kill Shimei. He says to Abishai and his officials, My son... Who is my own flesh is trying to take my life. And how much more than this? Benjamin, leave him alone. Let him curse for God has told him to. By the way, David felt a bit of guilt because he remembered what he had done. He had killed a man, had taken another man's wife and God had said to him, I'm going to forgive you, but there's consequences. Your children will rise up against you. And that's exactly what was happening. David remembered that. He said, I'm only getting what I've sowed. Then he goes, it may be that the Lord will see my misery. Now this is beautiful. And restore to me his covenant blessing instead of this curse today. He saw Shimei's curse as being, you know, I'm getting what I kind of sowed, but I'm hoping that God can see the pain I'm experiencing right now and show me mercy. And that God would restore his covenant blessing to me. Because at this moment, David feels like maybe God is rejecting me. He's going through a tremendous moment of angst in his soul. Can you see that? All right. Let God avenge this slander, this cursing, this injustice in my life. I think meekness lets God handle our enemies. Isn't that beautiful? I don't have to handle my enemies. I'm going to let God do that. You know what? I'm going to let God address this because I could never address it correctly. You know, it's interesting in the Old Testament it says an eye for an eye. You know, sometimes we say that's kind of bad. No, that was to measure our punishment so that we would not exceed what somebody's done to us. Do you know so often when somebody hurts us, we don't want to just get even. We want to do damage. Come on now. You know we don't know where to, where the end line is. You know, and I see this when people get hurt, they get angry, they get bitter, and they don't they don't want to just hurt the person back. They want to destroy that person, and that's not the spirit of meekness. The spirit of meekness says, you know what, Lord, you know, I'm going to let you address this. I'm going to let you measure out what you think is fair in this situation, and I'm going to accept that decision as from your hand. So. David, you know, meekness, I think, is the ability to forgive those who have despised us. When David now defeats Absalom, and I think this is amazing, Shimei is the first guy to welcome him back in. You know, he says this, When Shimei, son of Gerai, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king. He said, May my lord not hold me guilty. Do you not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord, the king, left Jerusalem? May the king put this out of his mind, you know? For I, your servant, know that I have sinned, but today I've come here as the first of the tribe of Joseph to come down and meet my king. Now Abishai, the same guy that wanted to kill him the last time, says, shouldn't he be put to death? He's cursed the Lord's anointed. David said, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that I am king over Israel? In other words, why should I destroy this guy? I'm secure. I know who I am. You know." And then it says, David forgave him. He says, you're not going to die. And he gave him a oath. He'd protect him from killing him. Now, I believe the you know, the next thing I see, and this is the last thing, is that it's in our ability to forgive those who have rejected our love. This is probably the hardest. You know, so often in our life, the most painful experiences is when we have love rejected. We've been rejected by a spouse, a parent, a child. So how does David handle the rejection of his son Absalom? This is amazing to me. He tells his generals when they're going out to fight this war, he says, don't kill him." okay? Joab kills him anyways. You know, he just doesn't like what's going on. And then King, the king asks the messenger who's coming back to give a report of the battle. Is the young man... First thing out of his mouth, he didn't say, did we win the battle? He says, is the young man Absalom safe? And the Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. In other words, he's dead. He's, gonna, he's not going to cause you any more grief. You think... What's David's response? Good, rotten kid, spoiled rotten, did all those bad things to me. No, it says, the king was shaken and he went to his room and he wept and he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I'd died instead of you. Isn't that amazing? That's a meek spirit. See, he's going, you know, this is really grieving me. I'd rather have died than you. Joab was told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. The ability to mourn over the loss over people who have mistreated us is a sign of meekness. In other words, I don't celebrate their losses. I weep over them because I actually pity them. And that's a meek person. And I want to close with a story. A South African woman stood in an emotionally charged courtroom listening to white police officers acknowledging the atrocities they had perpetrated in, in a regime called apartheid. This is in South Africa, in the name of apartheid. Officer Van de Brock acknowledged his responsibilities in the death of her son. Along with others, he had shot her 18-year-old son at point-blank range, and he and others, while partying, they burned his body, turning it over and over into the fire until they reduced it to ashes. Now, you have to understand what happened in South Africa. You know, remember I said the tables turned? Well, now the people who had been oppressed were now the leaders. But Nelson Mandela, who had been in prison, comes to power. Some of you know a little bit about Nelson Mandela. You know what he decided? I don't want to destroy this culture. I don't want to get even, you know, because he's a black person with the white people. You know what he said? No, I want to. I want to bring about reconciliation, and I want the victims to be able to talk to the to the per- people that perpetrated the crimes. So here was a victim now facing the person who had killed her son. It says eight years later, Vanderbroek and others arrived to seize her husband. A few hours later, shortly after midnight, he, he took the woman and he took her to a woodpile where her husband lay bound and she was forced to watch as they poured gasoline over his body and ignite the flames that consumed his body. His last words that she heard from her husband were, forgive them. Now Vanderbrock stood before her awaiting judgment because now she could speak into the judgment that would be rendered to this police officer. She said, I want three things. She told the, the, the judge. And she said it very calmly. She said, Number one, I want Mr. Vanderbrock to take me to the place where they burnt my husband's body. I would like to gather up the dust and give him a decent burial. Number two, I want Mr. Vanderbrock, who took all of my family from me, and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. Number three, I would like Mr. Vanderbrock to know. That he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. And I would like someone to lead me to where he's seated. She was blind. So I can embrace him and he can know my forgiveness is real. That's the spirit of meekness. How many go, that's amazing. Can you imagine in that courtroom when she said that? It was so powerful. People were moved by that act of forgiveness. How could she do that? Obviously, she had the Spirit of Christ living within her, and she was exhibiting meekness. Let's stand. You know, when we were praying this morning, we had a very powerful prayer time. You know, I was here really early. I was praying with a dozen men. It was powerful. One of our brothers began to pray this prayer. I want to share what he said. He said, Lord, may today be like Okay, Gilgal. Think for a minute. Gilgal. Gilgal was a very interesting place in Israel's history. They had been a nation of slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt. They had lived in the wilderness, but how many know it's really hard to shed all the scarring and the pain and the hurt and the imagery of Egypt? You know, when we're abused and misused and mistreated, it scars us. How many say that's true? And it's, you know... The real healing isn't the fact that we're now free from it. The real healing happens afterwards and we have to process all the hurt and pain and garbage. And when they got to Gilgal, just before they went into the promised land, that whole generation were circumcised because they hadn't been to that point. And the Bible says, and they called the place Gilgal because the reproach of Egypt had been rolled away the shame of Egypt, the pain of Egypt, the sorrow of Egypt, the slavery of Egypt had been taken away. And here tonight, some of you, we pray for you today. We said, God, you're going to bring people here today who have been wounded, who have been hurt, mistreated, you're broken. Maybe you've lost people. Maybe they've even died, but they have perpetrated things against you. And you've lived with the scarring of all of Let me tell you something tonight. God wants you to have a Gilgal. God wants to free you from all of that. You say, how can that happen, Pastor? We can choose to not allow bitterness and hurt and resentment and anger and unforgiveness to dominate us. We can move past the pain of our yesteryear and now address it tonight and say, Lord, I want to be free from all of that. I want to be free from the scarring. I want to be free from the pain tonight. I choose to forgive these people because I want to walk in the spirit of Christ. I want to walk in the spirit of meekness. I want to walk in a spirit of forgiveness. I want to begin a new beginning because, Lord, I know tonight that it's the meek that inherit the promises of Almighty God. And I want to receive what you have for me, but my past has been defining my present. And it's affecting my future. But from today on, I want to let go of that stuff so that I can be free. So I can be free to experience what you have for me. And with every head bowed tonight, God has been speaking to you. And that's you tonight. Just raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you right now. Just raise your hand. There are people all over this auditorium raising their hands. I'm going to pray for you right now that this is going to be a new day for you. This is going to be the beginning of a new time for you. God's going to liberate you tonight and set you free. And so, Father, I pray tonight that the Spirit of Christ the spirit of meekness, the spirit of grace, the spirit of forgiveness, the spirit of grace would flow into our souls tonight and bring healing to the scars and the brokenness and the woundedness in our lives and that you would set us free from the slavery of pain in the past in the name of Jesus and that we can walk out of here absolutely liberated and free, that we can experience your future promises which are good for us you have an amazing future for us Lord and we are going to experience that in our lives we're going to walk in your promises we're going to walk in the power of your spirit in Jesus name amen and amen God bless you as you leave tonight may you live in this new freedom